The Innocence Network is a loose affiliation of independent innocence organizations, and each year, members of these organizations, as well as the hundreds of exonerees who they've helped free, gather for the Innocence Network Conference, and it's a beautiful thing. For one weekend, the exonerees can all count on the fact that there are other people around who share their experience, and our team was honored to join them for their 2022 gathering in Arizona. We recorded a number of interviews, and the damage that these stories do to your faith in humanity is only then restored by the amazing people telling those stories. Clay Chabot and his friend Doug Graham were bikers who dealt some drugs in Garland, Texas. Clay's brother-in-law, Jerry Paps, was a customer. With a newborn son, Clay was beginning to leave that life behind, when, on April 19, 1986, Doug Graham's common-law wife was found in her home, having been sexually assaulted and shot dead. When Paps returned a gun that he'd taken from his sister, he told her husband, Clay, about how he was at Doug's that morning to buy drugs, heard gunshots, and fled. Witnesses had seen Paps' car there, and he was later found wearing bloody clothing. However, even with all of this evidence pointing towards Pabst, he was able to redirect detectives towards his rough-looking brother-in-law, Clay Chabot. A rape kit was performed, but in 1986, the DNA testing that would one day exclude Clay was not available. Curiously, no blood type evidence was presented. Instead of simply using the evidence that implicated Pabst, detectives decided that they needed a statement from Clay. When Clay refused to testify to something that he didn't know, detectives chose to ignore all evidence and the inconsistent statements from Paps to focus their efforts squarely on Clay. Using Paps as their star witness and the implicit bias against bikers, Clay Chabot was sentenced to life in prison. It took the evolution of DNA testing, the post-conviction statutes allowing it, and the dedicated team at the Innocence Project to finally prove what seemed to be evident to the prosecutor at Clay's original trial. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First first Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode... How can I say this? If I was going to teach a third grade class how to solve a crime, I might present them with the evidence that was available and abundant in this case. And they would solve this case, I would say, within an hour at the most. I mean, this one came with instructions. And yet the authorities managed to not only lock up an innocent man, but let the obvious suspect remain free. And of course, I'm talking about the case of Clay Chabot. Clay, I'm sorry for everything you went through. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And with Clay, one of his attorneys, Jason Craig from the Innocence Project in New York. Jason, I think this is your first time on the show, but hopefully not the last. It is. I'm happy to be here. And so thanks for having me. All right. So Clay, you were born a couple of years before I was and grew up in Texas? No, Ohio. Ohio. So tell us about that. What was your childhood like? My father was a truck driver, mother... You know, home care. I had a lot of kids. And uh, my parents broke up when I was eight years old. Uh, and I got shoveled from one family member to the other for about seven years or so until I was about 15 and uh, decided to just take off my own. So I started cross country, hitchhiking across country, wound up in California for a few years, got married. That lasted about a year. Got divorced, went back to Ohio, and decided to join the military in 1981. I was on an aircraft carrier. It was a large ship with uh, 5,000 guys, but we were all confined to small spaces and under authority. So I think it gave me the uh, strength and the fortitude to endure what I went through later in life. Wow. Served about three, three and a half years in the military, and I got run over by a hit-and-run drunk driver on my motorcycle. So I got discharged and went back to Ohio. And we're here at the Innocence Network Conference. I'm so happy to be recording live and in person again. And you can't see Clay, but I can. And the way he dresses today, he looks like a be in a corporate boardroom somewhere. But you were a tough guy back then, right? And no judgment here. You were involved in some, uh, let's just say, extra-legal activities, right? Absolutely. Where I was raised in Ohio, you know, impoverished, there's actually the Hells Angels Clubhouse. So a lot of people there indulge in mind-altering drugs. We can't afford to go to bail for ski trips. We take ours locally. (laughs) Internally. Yes. Um, I understand. And by the way, like I said, no judgment here. I mean, when I was a kid, we probably should compare our uh, old photos because I had so much hair, I couldn't even see. I looked like Cousin It. And I used to smoke weed from from sunup to sundown, and I was involved in some some stuff I definitely shouldn't have been involved in. So anyway, so you were into motorcycles, the Hells Angels, drugs, you did some dealing, and you moved to Texas at some point. You got married, had a son, Harley, a few months before all this happened. And he's here with us today. And Harley's uncle, your brother-in-law, Jerry Pabst, he lived nearby with his wife. And he used to come to you and a friend of yours, Doug Graham, for drugs. Now, from what I understand, Pabst was into speed and coke and was led to believe that Doug had cut a batch of whatever he was taking with too much baking soda or some other substance, even though it was you, Clay, who did the cutting. And Doug was aware of this. And that leads us up to... April 19th, 1986, Garland, Texas, unbeknownst to Clay, 
Paps had taken a gun from his sister, Clay's wife. And later that day, Doug Graham's common-law wife, who was 28 years old, her body was found in their home. And this is just awful, so brace yourself. But she had been tied, gagged, shot three times, and she had been raped. A rape kit was performed, but that evidence, unfortunately, wasn't useful. Or perhaps the blood-type evidence wasn't useful to the state. Because you got to imagine if it was, they would have brought it up. But we don't know either way. And however, the biological evidence didn't become useful to Clay and really all of us until DNA testing became available many years later. And I want to turn to Jason here because this really was a horrific crime. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And that did get attention immediately, even on the local news. And it just so happened to be someone who Clay knew of. The victim's husband, they weren't really legally married. Doug Graham was a, really about one of my best friends. And I mean, we associated on Christmas, we played cards, we hung out together for, for several years. And so that was the initial nexus that even started any interest in Clay for any reason. There was no physical evidence connecting Clay to the crime. That wasn't the case for his brother-in-law. That's absolutely right. Um, when you said in the introduction that most elementary school children could have solved this case within a few hours and actually identified the actual perpetrator, you're right. The police, they had one individual, Gerald Papps, who was telling a series of different stories over and over again. A person who had been found with blood on his shirt within hours of this homicide person who had proceeds from the victim's home, person who had pawned some items that were taken there, whose car had been at the victim's home earlier in that day. None of this information was dependent on anyone else's statement. This was actual physical evidence linking him to the crime. What the detectives also had was someone else, Clay, who was actually helping, who actually reached out and said there might be something to what had just happened when his brother-in-law had shown back up to return this gun. Correct. They came to my house, asked me a few questions, and you know, I told them all about how my brother-in-law had taken the gun from his sister's purse prior to this. And I, he was standing at the door, and I said, come on in. He said, no, 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 i got to go. I said, and he handed me the gun. And I said, what are you doing with this? He said, well, I borrowed it this morning for Sandy's purse. I looked, and I said, where's the clip? He said, oh, yeah, and he handed me the clip. And I noticed the clip was empty. I said, where are the bullets? He said, I threw them out. I said, what are you talking about? Come in here. So he came in and he tells me the story. He claimed he was supposed to meet the victim's husband, Doug Graham. But he said he got over there and before he could even get out of his car and go in, he saw two men pull up in a car and they went inside and he heard gunshots. So he got scared and left. So he came back to my house and he returned this gun. He left my house and I'm thinking, it. I didn't know anybody had been hurt at the time. So I'm thinking, you know, he's been up all night on speed and so I didn't pay much attention to it. And uh, later that afternoon, I was supposed to meet Doug for another deal we were going to do. But And I wasn't even paying attention to the TV. It's almost like it played, and then I heard it, and I had to replay it in my mind to say, what did they just say? And my wife, she knew the victims, and she said, that's her. I said, what? And for some reason in your mind, you didn't leap to that conclusion. I just couldn't believe that he could do something like that it'd be like somebody trying to tell you your brother or your mother or something was cape i mean i knew the guy for several years i'd been married to his sister for several years and i just couldn't conceive of it that's just so far out of my realm and world of you know like i said i've never really heard anybody about myself through my own abuse of things so i believed his story i believed that he was there saw a couple people and i really wanted him to just try to lead them to help solve the situation itself 
I, I got to tell you, I pondered over that. I didn't call Doug until like the next day because I tried to reach Doug that night because I was supposed to meet him, and somebody strange answered his house phone. And I thought, oh, I don't know who that is. So I said, well, who are you trying to get a hold of? What do you want for? So I hung up. So I said, man, something's really gone wrong over there. So I went back down to Jerry's house, and I said, Jerry, I'm going to drive over to Doug's. You want to go with me? He said, oh, no, 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 man. I don't want to go anywhere near that place. And then I started getting a little more leery and worried. And now I'm in a situation, though, where, you know, if I do do this, i got to live with this sister. You know, how do you live with your wife when you've reported her brother for something like that? I mean, just the conflict in that, my head and heart. But I thought to myself, you know what? If this was my sister, my wife, I'd want somebody to help me. And the next day is when I decided to call Doug and tell him how I think I had information. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. He had just been born. He was five months old, and uh, I was trying to knock off the stupid stuff, straighten myself up, because he was finally something more important to me. And for our listeners, Clay's son Harley's here with us now. Um, he's about twice the size of his father, but uh, <laughs> and he's now 36 years old. And I just turned, you know, like 25, you know, and they say the prefrontal cortex in males doesn't develop until 25 when you start having thoughts of huge consequences. So I think it was just a matter of, you know, age and plus, you know, like I said, him being born and, and it was my friend. And so I wanted to do the right thing. But we see too often people like you who come forward trying to help and wanted to be, you know, good citizens and believed in the system um, as you did. And it ends up putting them in the crosshairs. Let me say this, in fairness of things, I kind of created this whole scenario in a way for myself. Um, Jerry wanted more drugs. I didn't want to give them to him. I told him he should call my friend Doug. I just wanted him to get out of my house and leave. So that's what led him to go over to Doug's house. Later, though, Jerry would tell a story about how the drugs I had and gotten from Doug earlier were inadequate. Well, quite frankly, it was my own doing. I had put too much cut on the drugs so there was no animosity between me and Doug because Doug didn't do anything wrong. But I had told Jerry that just to get him out of my house. I said, man, this stuff's no good. You don't want any of this. So in fairness, man, I sort of set the stage that led the police to believe that I had a reason that I was angry with Doug over it. But they didn't really look at the smaller facts like Doug knew that wasn't true. Doug knew that I was supposed to meet him again that night to do another deal. I mean, so when they left my house that afternoon, they asked me if they could have the gun. They asked if I had any more of the same kind of bullets, and I happily ran it or gave them to them. They left, and within a few hours, uh, my brother-in-law's wife came to the house, screaming about how the police had showed up, arrested him, and as I understood it, by then they'd already had a witness that positively identified his car at the scene of the crime. They caught him with blood on his clothes, pawn tickets for stolen merchandise, and maybe some stolen merchandise. So, I don't know, you know, like I said, he was clean cut, and I was a rough-looking guy, and so he gave him the story that I had borrowed his car, and that he didn't go there, and they allowed him to just change his story. Every time his facts proved wrong, they just let him change his story, because they didn't see why Jerry would do something like that, you know? They were looking for the motive, and I'll tell you this, the detectives simply didn't want to believe that I had handed them the solution to this case on a silver platter. They were like, no, we're detectives. There's got to be more to this. It's got to be more complicated. You know, something for us to unravel and figure. I just don't think they could accept the fact that this would have been so simple had they just looked at the evidence as it stood. So they came back and arrested me. So you're arrested, taken to jail. Were you in jail awaiting trial? Did you bail out? Oh, no. No, they had me on, a, I think, a quarter million. And how long did you? I think about eight months. Eventually just rolled out to where they came to me and they said, look, 
we don't think you're actually there, but we need somebody to testify. If you'll testify against your brother-in-law, we'll let you go. This was a situation where the, the state felt they needed a confession, someone who could turn into a witness who was actually there. And one person had information because there was only one person there, Gerald Papps. And Clay was not there, was not involved. And so he had no ability to offer what the state wanted, what the state felt they needed to prove a case. I believed in the justice system wholeheartedly. I just came out of the military. I'd never been in serious trouble of any kind before. And so I said, listen, I can't do that. You want me to lie to possibly send this guy to death row for something? I don't know what he did or not. I said, okay. Well, they went to Jerry, my brother-in-law, and said same thing. And she got on the stand, pointed the finger, said, yeah, we're both there. He pulled the trigger. They let him go, and they gave me a life sentence. So he gave the state what they needed, and he got a benefit, an immediate benefit that lasted for him a couple decades. Yeah. I mean, there's that saying, a body for a body, right? And we know that Sadly, in too many cases, the authorities are happy to just get somebody, close the case, and move on. And then the idea that in this case, they had every reason to know, they may even have known, that the guy who was weaving these bizarre tales, I mean, nobody could possibly believe that, but they did, or at least the jury did. There's a a very telling note that we uncovered in the prosecutor's file um, years later when we're looking into the case. Uh, acknowledging that Paps, he was found within hours, bloody t-shirt. And the quote is, you know, something like, this is a problem for us. Well, yeah, it's a big problem for us. You you literally had the person who was connected to the crime physically with physical evidence, who is your star witness. That's a huge problem for the state. And we can never know exactly what was in the prosecutor's mind when she wrote that note, but um, the context clues are fairly clear. She understood that the person that they were relying on to solve this homicide was someone who was actually involved in the homicide. And of course, now we know that with certainty based on the DNA testing that was done years later. But even at the time of trial, the contemporaneous notes that the prosecutor had recognized they had a problem because Paps, their star witness, was the person who was found with blood. And of course, this is the person who initially said he had nothing to do with the crime at all, wasn't even there, and then puts himself there, eventually changes the story that way, and then changes the story a little bit more, puts himself there, and then changes the story a little bit more, and all of a sudden he's now inside the house, but never willing to say what we now know he actually did. One of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading about the trial was the idea that, and I think this should be a red flag in every case, is when Jerry said that you forced him at gunpoint to tie up the victim. That's not a thing that happens, except maybe in some weird TV show or movie, right? Supposed to be your criminal partner, yeah, and you're pointing a gun at him now. Did I point a gun at him and make him carry the TV out too? Jason... Unless there was something else presented, I don't even understand how a jury could get this one wrong. So what did they hear? They have a witness who claims to have been there during the entire crime, who is now backed by the state, called by the state, who's walking them through what we now know is, and what Clay obviously knew then, was a fictitious story about what happened. I mean, they're hearing it blow by blow from this witness as the state solicits information from him. And then the state calls other witnesses to vouch for Jerry, to present Jerry as this person who was overwhelmed by the ringleader, who's the defendant there, Clay. But Jerry, of course, in the state's eyes, was this person who you know, wasn't a violent person, hadn't done other bad things. 
didn't look like Clay looked at the time. You know. So what they presented was me as a criminal in general, rode Harley-Davidson's, carried guns, did drugs, looked like Charles Manson. So Clay, what was the evidence that was presented in your defense at the trial? Unfortunately, I mean, my defense was, look, I was at home sleeping. I mean, how do you prove that? So the only person that was able to testify in my behalf was my wife, which was the sister of the witness against me. And so they just claimed she was a liar to protect me. Not considering that, how do you think she could get up there and say, you know, look, he didn't do it indirectly implicating her own brother. I think the failure is that the prosecutor, they knew the limitations of what they knew. They didn't need DNA testing in 1986 to know the limitations of their case. They wrote about it in their notes. And they should have been the ones who check the beyond a reasonable doubt standard before they put someone's life at stake. The jury goes out. How long did they deliberate, Clay? I didn't have time to smoke a cigarette before they said the jury was back. Wow. So it was minutes. Yeah. If you could take us back to that moment. You know, I just went into a sort of a shock state because it really didn't impact me or hit me until they immediately conducted the penalty phase. And my wife at the time, Harley's mother, had got up and uh, went to the bathroom. And they ran the penalty phase so fast. By the time she came back from the bathroom, they were already announcing life. You know, what as soon as they do that, they stand you up, and they drag you to the back. And I remember asking if they would put me in a private cell because I didn't want to be in with the crowd of you know other people being transported around. And I just wanted to scream in terror. And I did in my mind. Prison is 90% boredom, punctuated by 10% sheer stark terror. You just have to, over the years, you adapt. You have to. When I went in, Texas prison system was run by what they call the building tender system. Inmates were running it. There was only a handful of guards, two or three thousand inmates. The inmates were empowered with authority, weapons to maintain the prison system. It was brutal, absolutely brutal. You know, it's odd. Even though it was run by prisoners and it was brutal, if you followed the rules with them, there was a lot more internal freedom. And it was more of a physical thing. In fact, it wasn't until some years to follow that a large lawsuit, federal, brought in special masters, and they brought the guards in, and they took the building tenders out. It became more of a mental pressure. But I had to say, again, because I was a little older, I think, and I had gone through the military, and I used my head. The gang members and things, I taught them how to do things that they weren't doing that made it profitable for them. So I became an asset. And so they would say, leave him alone. So I tried to stay, you know, just actively involved with the, either education or something to keep my mind off of, you know, the day-to-day mundane. And Was there a lowest and a highest point for you while you were in there? I had a number of them. The one in my first one, my father died. And at those points, I considered suicide. But that's not in my DNA. I even um, had it all figured out, several ways to do it. But quite frankly, I knew this. See, my mind, strip away everything else. My mind knew it didn't do what it was being punished for. And it just needed to know it had a way out, if it had to, at all last resort. So once I had that option of suicide, knowing that I do have the option to get out of this if I have to, it gave me the strength to go on. Finally, when 
you know, after years and years of Dallas telling me that they'd lost the evidence, I knew they had to be a lie, and I fought it for 10, 12 years, and finally found it. And then the high point would have been one little step was when Texas finally passed a, a law or whatever that said, you know, if you want to apply for DNA testing, that gave me some hope. But the highest would have been when DNA testing proved that Jerry Papp's semen was recovered from the rape kit. His DNA was on her hands, DNA on her fingernails, and then I knew that, you know, we probably had a pretty good shot of at least, you know, convincing them that they had it wrong and might want to look at it again. Identifying Pap's DNA in this, you know, extremely probative items of evidence, as Clay recounted, it was the key that turned the story. And at that point in time, I think Clay's perception is, is accurate. Even the people who were absolutely convinced that the prosecutor might have been on the right path from the get-go, even those individuals had to start opening their eyes and wonder now what was going on. While this case came with instructions from the very beginning, now, 20 years later or so, it came with scientific certainty. The actual perpetrator was identified. State located him. He had gone back to Ohio by that point in time and eventually uh, you know, was arrested for the crime. Now, this is the state's star witness, but they did, with the DNA evidence testing that was done, identify him and, and ultimately convict him after Clay's uh, conviction was overturned. Jason, I think most people in the audience are probably thinking now, well, amen, right? Finally, justice, exoneration, compensation, and in this case... That's not the story of Clay's case right now. So tragically, after the DNA evidence identified Paps, the state decided to re-prosecute Clay. They knew that they had been lied to, that they allowed someone to lie to the jury. They knew the actual perpetrator who had been convicted. They decided to re-prosecute Clay. And it gets worse. By that point in time, Clay was fortunate that some of the physical evidence was retained the evidence that identified Paps. But much of the physical evidence had been lost by that point in time. So the state's plan was to just run it back, now recognizing that the person who they had put all their faith in the first time was the actual perpetrator, but unwilling to recognize that the case had no legs to stand on against Clay. And Clay was forced to contemplate going to trial again without even the ability to, to examine and retest some of the other evidence that the state at this point had lost. So, for example, the purported murder weapon. We mentioned earlier Jerry Paps, when he was arrested, had a bloody T-shirt. That had been lost. So we couldn't demonstrate that even Paps' fourth or fifth or eighth version of events wasn't accurate. You know, had we been able to identify the victim's blood on his T-shirt, for example, it and I have to say, I was actually hopeful that we would be able to convince the judge, once we knew we couldn't convince the prosecutor, to just dismiss it against Clay because the misconduct in this case was so deep. We tried from all angles, both negotiating with the prosecutor. We tried with the judge, and we weren't successful. And ultimately, that left Clay once again um, in the moment where he's posed with a question that he should have never had to face. You know, what to do when the prosecutor comes to him now? You can walk out time served, but on one condition, you have to plead guilty. It's hard to figure out what master they're serving at this point in time, too, right? They have the guy. The guys, they got him. The right guy. Now, finally, you got the right guy. Even though you guys did everything you possibly could to fuck this up as bad as you possibly could, now the right guy's in prison. And that so, was extremely frustrating. And so as Clay mentioned, you know, he had been failed by the system before. He had seen that happen. 
He'd seen what jurors did very quickly in the original trial. And I don't fault Clay for a second for making the decision that allowed him to walk out and be with us today. And as I mentioned earlier, Clay's son Harley is here with us right now. So we wanted to give him a chance to talk about his memories and what the day his father was freed, what that time was like for him. I don't know how to explain happiness and anger at the same time. His brother is the one that brought him home, and I remember, I remember it, was a, it was a silver Dodge Ram that turned a corner. I remember seeing him in the front yard. Uh, I was so excited he was home, jumping up and down, obviously crying as soon as he got out of the truck. Yeah, happy, happy and mad. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, happy and mad at the same time. You know, I hugged him and told him I love him. Uh, and, and I have to share because him taking that guilty plea was partly my decision. Uh, he had called me when they offered him that. He said, what do I do, man? He said, I can, I can come home now, but I'm gonna, they're going to leave it on my record and they're going to call me a murderer. Or I can fight this, and I didn't do this, Harley. I know I didn't do it, so I know I can fight him. I could probably get some money out of this. You know, we'll, we'll both be fine. You know, everybody will be fine. And I said, who fucking cares if they call you a murderer? Are you? He said, no, Harley. Screw it, man. Don't. <laughs> you already gave him 23 years. They're going to look for every reason they can. I love to gamble. <laughs> I already gave you 23 years for nothing. <laughs> Odds are clearly not in my favor. I'll go home. It affected me for 23 years. It affected all of his family, my mother. We were asking her mom. You know, she stayed married to him until I was about 19. She was in a pretty brutal place as well. You know, it's, her, it's your brother and your husband. She never called the dad guilty. And she never defended Jerry. So it makes me feel like she knew more. But she was just in a hard place. And it, it always it always kind of bugged me because Jerry was around her family. I almost feel like a bad human for saying it sometimes. But I'm glad that everything happened to him happened to him. Um, you know, he passed away in prison, uh, which is perfect um, in my mind. I think I'm allowed to feel that way. But it, it ripped our family apart. But we can we can do this to, to humans and throw them in prison. And it there not be a lot of recourse, you know. The prosecutor, I actually learned some today that I didn't know. You know, this could be a problem for us. You were aware of that even. You destroyed a life. Oh, well, sorry. Well, no, you owe me more than that. I don't want money. You go to prison now. You know, that's what you should do. How many other people did you do this to? Was this the only one you got caught in? And that's just that's just one, one time era, one prosecutor in one city. How often does this happen all over the United States, over the world? I, this is the first instance conference that I've been to. I was shocked by how many exonerees there are. I thought it was only a, a couple, you know, or like 10 or 15, which is still, that's still too many. You know, if this was an airline, statistically speaking, if this was an airline that had planes crashing, they would shut it down and fix it immediately. Like, it, there'd be outrage everywhere. Something has to change. This has got to be fixed. I also want to point out that these people who were making these decisions to re-prosecute or at least we're threatening to re-prosecute Clay, we're more than happy to spend countless more tax dollars on a ridiculous sham trial, a second ridiculous sham trial. But we're somehow so protective of the idea that we wouldn't want to use those same tax dollars to compensate this man. It gets a little more complicated for one reason, and that's something we've kind of missed over, and that is my original prosecutor. See, as you know, they have various laws for set amounts of compensation when someone's 
mm-hmm. determined wrongfully convicted. And you can't prosecute a prosecutor if they're just doing their job within the limits of the law. But if they they violate the law, you can take that out and sue for untold amounts. And that's what we proved. My original prosecutor broke the law by withholding evidence and presenting testimony that she knew was false. So we had special hearings, went to the bar, she was found guilty, but again, the bar protects themselves, and they gave her punishment, but it was considered, uh, what do they call a private censor or something like that. They wouldn't tell us what they did to her. She still remained a current DA in another county at that time. Listen, whether or not they want to put it in a legal document, I don't think there's any sane or rational person that believes you had anything to do with this crime. The good news is you're here. You're never going back, and I'm glad that we're here to uh, put a sort of a stamp on it and and tell this story in the way that you've told it today. Okay, and now we have a tradition. It's called Closing Arguments. First of all, I thank both of you again, Jason Craig from The Innocence Project, Clay Chabot, exoneree, for being here and and sharing your story. And and then I'm going to turn off my microphone kick back in my chair, and turn it over to you guys for any final thoughts you want to share with me and our audience, as is also traditional. Jason, we're going to let you go first and then have the man himself take us out. Excellent. Jason, thank you, and thank you for your team for uh, doing the podcast. I think it's it's super important to share these stories. So I guess I'd just say this. When I see Clay, or particularly when I'm here uh, at these annual conferences and see hundreds of people who have overcome similar challenges. I'm reminded by some of the the people who didn't have the same strength to get to the end or didn't have the same time because their life just ended in prison or gave up. Had Clay not had the fortitude to keep fighting, to write the next letter, to just say, no, no, I'm not going to stop right now. So Clay, just like everyone who's here at this conference, they're they're the strongest people who we know. If Clay couldn't keep going, if Clay couldn't figure out how to to live the next day in prison, just like everyone who's here at the conference now, had they not had the fortitude to keep going, we wouldn't know their story. We wouldn't be able to tell their story. And so I guess the closing thought that I want to see is, you know, when I see Clay sitting here, I see the hundreds or thousands of additional people who some of us know him very well because we worked on their cases and we could never get them to the innocence finish line. They still are in prison. Um, or tragically, they died in prison. And I think that seeing Clay here, everyone else here, is absolutely wonderful and energizing. And it's a reminder of the additional work we can do and some of the work that we can't do because those cases will never be identified. We'll just never know about thousands of people who have the same tragedy, but we won't know their names. Mine would be... um for the public society people to wake up and recognize that you know they have the power to assess the evidence as it's presented to them, not just accept what the prosecutors tell them, and just keep this in mind, because these things, at least they're coming more to light because of scientific DNA evidence has made it conclusively proven. But just remember this, it could be your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, that's on that stand next time being accused. You know, if you think you just walk in there and you want to go home, you don't really want to delve into it, you just, just remember, uh, this could be you next time. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. 
I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts